Welcome to episode 363 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Last month, I was invited to speak at two conferences, and when asked about the title of my talk, I submitted a new talk, Overcome Common Virtual Event Mistakes to Increase Engagement and Sales. There is nothing like a deadline to get me to create a new training that I've been talking about for months. Despite having two other Zoom-related trainings, low-tech solutions to design inclusive and engaging Zoom events, and getting set up for success on Zoom, I felt they lacked some very basic but often overlooked steps to avoid looking like an amateur on Zoom. Just in the last six months, I've witnessed six and seven figure entrepreneurs making these missteps. I guess the good news is, if you practice a bit, you could very quickly become head and shoulders better than your colleagues and competitors when it comes to launching offers or delivering programs on Zoom. Quite literally, if they are still sitting at the bottom of their screen with a huge amount of space above their head, You would be head and shoulders above them if you follow my steps for proper framing. As a virtual event design consultant and executive Zoom producer, I partner with speakers and in-house event teams to design inclusive, engaging, and transformative events. I aim to lower your stress by helping you meet your and your participants' event goals. If you'd like to book me for any of these talks or set up a complimentary event optimization assessment call, reach out and let's have a chat. Email Robbie at robbysamuels.com. That's Robbie, R-O-B-B-I-E, at robbysamuels.com. R-O-B-B-I-E-S-A-M-U-E-L-S. Next, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest is a global visionary in the realm of organizational strategy and culture, transformational leadership, global inclusion, and strategic storytelling. He's the chief visionary officer of Numos LLC, a management consulting and coaching firm with a global footprint. He's on a mission to reshape how organizations approach diversity, equity, and inclusion. With a career spanning over two decades, he's an expert in fostering cultures of belonging and innovation. He co-founded the Meta Principle TM Institute, empowering practitioners worldwide to facilitate equity work. He's also the co-creator of the groundbreaking global inclusion praxis model, driving transformative change within systems. Whether it's a dialogue, LGBT inclusion, or addressing unconscious bias, he's at the forefront of driving change. He's the author of The Souls of Queer Folk, How Understanding LGBTQ Plus Culture can transform your leadership practice, please 
joining me, welcoming Dr. Joel A. Brown. Welcome, Dr. Joel A. Brown. Hello, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us in your place in San Francisco. Congratulations on all your success and in writing and publishing a book. Uh, I have a show that's build, building strong networks and the context is leadership. So to kick things off, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Thank you, really great question. Uh, I define leadership as the ability to leverage one's skill sets to positively transform your environment. That's what leadership is. And I would be remiss as to your second question, if I didn't first speak to who inspired me in my leadership, and that's my mom. Um, I saw my mom's example every single day. I saw my grandparents and my aunts and uncles, and those were the you know, highest examples of leadership. When did I know that I could be a leader? I don't think it was ever something that I consciously thought about, uh, frankly, um, until I was in high school. And I remember one day we had a number of different rallies and protests and whatnot when I was in high school. And one in particular I couldn't make and I couldn't attend because I was busy either in study hall or had something else to do. And I remember walking down the hall and one of my classmates came up to me and she said, where were you? And there was kind of this, this uh, energy behind the words. And I said, well, I was busy. And she said, well, we needed you there. We needed you to be in the, in the group. And that's when I knew that just my presence, but also my actions, my words, and my behavior had impact that people were looking to me to say and do certain things. And it's never any, it's not something I take for granted. And um, people are always watching, people are always listening. And so I think it's important to be authentic and to also make sure that you are always creating that positive uh, imprint on wherever you, whatever environment you find yourself in. I want to circle back first to your definition, which was a beautifully succinct one. Are you able to repeat that for me? Leveraging? Sure. Yeah. The ability to leverage one's skill sets or one's talents to positively transform your environment. I mean, it's beautiful. I love the fact that I've been doing this for, you know, seven plus years and I, I've heard lots of definitions. I think yours really pulls everything together. And, um, you know, you just shared that while it wasn't something you were thinking about all the time, the fact that it came up even in high school is sort of interesting. I'm always curious what my guests were like as kids, you know, on the playground growing <laughs> up, you know, were you the kid organizing your friends to go play together? Were you sitting off on the side reading a book? Did you run for office? Were you part of after school clubs and activities, run sports club, whatever it was? Like what kind of kid were you? I was the kid that followed the beat of his own drum. I was not the, I was not part of a clique. I wasn't the most popular person but I was always the one who just did my own thing. And when things come up, you know, I'd be the one that would say, well, this is kind of silly or have you thought about it this way or why are you acting this way? In high school, I, rem I remember being the one who uh, would support kids and intervene if kids were being bullied. Um, in middle school, I was just one of the guys who, I didn't get into all the toxic masculinity stuff. So, you know, the, who, which girl is hot, which girl do you want? blah, 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 all the sexcapades. So none of that stuff was really interesting to me. And I was very much a nerd. I was a jock. I was a muse, um, kind of a geek too. And so I think leadership for me was just being myself and being very clear that I wasn't going to follow. And my, my mom in particular said, you're here to be a follower, not a leader. So that's how I conducted myself and how I 
engage with others is just by being myself. And I think people gained respect for me because I didn't follow the herd. I did what I wanted to do. So you mean you just listed that you were a, a nerd, geek, jock, and muse. Yeah. Those, those crowds don't always all hang out together. <laughs> they don't. And I think I effortlessly went between them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love sports. I still do. I love art. I'm analytical as hell. I like looking at technology and things. And so um, because I didn't have a group that I felt was like my own per se, I just found myself interacting with people based on a number of different interests. So I had friends in many different little pockets of school and pockets of the community. And so I think that was also part of my appeal is that as long as you were cool, as long as you were kind, as long as you uh, were a nice person, you treated others well and you were interesting too, then I didn't mind hanging out with you and I made friends pretty easily. I actually can really strongly relate to what you just described. I had a very large graduating class of a suburban high school with 1300 kids in the graduating class. So really big school. And I kind of floated. Like I just felt a little bit like a chameleon. Like I fit in a bunch of places, but none of those places necessarily fit all of me. And I don't think at the time I had any sense of what all of me even meant. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you grow up? Where, what's the what's the backdrop of this conversation? Sure, I grew up in Milwaukee, otherwise known as the Mill, the four one four MKE Bruce City. For those who don't know much about Milwaukee, which is typically what I see on the coast, Milwaukee is one of the more diverse cities in the country. Uh, it's a big city, and it has big city attractions, and it also has big city problems. So, where I grew up. Um, at the time, Milwaukee was a very racially stratified city. So you had the north side, which was primarily black, the east side, which was primarily Puerto Rican. Um, then you had the south side, which was Mexican. And then on pockets of the east side, you had Italians and Irish population. You had a big Jewish population. On the south side, you had a big Polish population, too. Um, and when I went to school, we were part of a busing program. So it was basically the working class whites the Blacks, the Puerto Ricans, the Mexicans, the Filipinos. And then we were all in the mix together going to this suburban high school, which was very uh, white, uh, rich, um, or wealthy, and a little homogenous. And there was a barrier that we had to cross, a social barrier, in terms of how people viewed us and what people expected of us. And the idea too that by going to the school we were deemed to be privileged like people thought and said to me in particular you should be happy for the school that you attend which um there were some interesting conversations that took place in school so that was the backdrop milwaukee is a very um it's a great place to raise children at least when i was growing up um people work hard people play hard people invest in their families and their communities and at the same time being a black queer kid you're an oddity so yeah there's places where you parts of you can fit in so as i talked about all these different groups there are parts of me that could be visible and open and whatnot but there was never a place where i felt completely seen i felt completely respected and so looking back a lot of the reason why i hung by myself was because i was trying to protect myself and i just needed to be someplace where i didn't have to always push or try as hard to fit in because i wasn't going to do that so that was uh, that's Milwaukee, and um, thank you. Yeah, very and very, very important place in my my journey. Yeah, sounds like a good place to grow up too, in the sense that it was so family focused, and 
uh, on the other hand, hard because of the busing. Uh, and I spent 20 years in Boston, so I've oh. learned a lot about that oh, I'm sure history. Yeah, so you know, busing similar similar issues, um, violent history of, of busing in that in that city. Yes. So I mean, it's interesting because in the moment it doesn't feel like a privilege. Um, you don't, as a kid, have anything to compare it to, uh, and it's hard. It's not like an easy life. At what point did you come out to yourself or start to think there might be something a little different about me versus these other kids? Well, I think like a lot of queer people, uh, I sensed something was different when I was seven. I just felt like um, a Jedi, and I use that term affectionately. I just felt different. And then probably around the age of 14, uh, as other young boys and young girls were talking about things and experiencing things, and I just wasn't, you know, I just didn't have the same voodoo. I didn't have the same magic. And, of course, there's always this pressure to date, you know, what I call this compulsive heterosexual, like, you know, who are you dating and who are you, I won't even say hooking up with yet, because in those days, things were a little bit more innocent. Uh, but um, because everybody else was was dating and having all these experiences, I wasn't. And I remember people asking me out, but I wasn't really interested in girls. And my excuse would be, you know, I want to focus on my studies and I like to keep to myself and read books and things like that. So it wasn't until I got to college that I really started to own the fact that, yeah, I'm probably more uh, attracted to boys. Although I, I knew that in high school, I knew that there was something about boys that I was drawn to more than with girls. And, uh, you know, girls were nice. And I remember I had a couple of girlfriends who broke up with me because I didn't make moves on them. I didn't try to go the full nine with them. I remember for my prom, I went out with Marlisha Jackson for my senior prom and her mother gave me this very stern warning. She better be back here by midnight. And I remember I got her home at like 1130 and her mom was shocked. She's like, oh, my God, you're, she's home early. I'm like, yep, peace out. And then I remember I snuck down to the Lower East Side, no, Walker's Point in Milwaukee, which is one of the gay districts, and managed to convince uh, the patrons at the bar that I was a uh, doing a research project on the gay community. And I just wanted to come and see what it was like to be in a gay bar. <laughs> and they, they humored me and said, sure, come on in. Yeah. What, what are you researching and where do you go to school and what is it that you want to know? Okay. And they made sure I didn't drink anything, but I went and sat in there and that's how I spent that evening, that Saturday evening after I dropped off Marlisha Jackson. Amazing, amazing yeah. story. Um, I mean, it just shows that you knew what you wanted. You were going to be creative and finding ways to get access. Um, yeah, I mean, I came out as queer in college and 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 I think sort of after college sort of really accepted the like, gender bender identity and gender queer then eventually became a word. And uh, in my late 20s, I um, took hormones. I, I didn't think about, I don't think it was some, something I think at 17, 14, I would have had vocabulary for because at that time, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, like people weren't really talking about it the way they are now. Um, but yeah, I mean, once you find your people, you start to like look for the spaces that they gather. At 12 years old, did you have a sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Was there some predestined path because of your family or was college a given or uh, even an option, like kind of where, where did that all fit in for you? What do you think life was going to look like? 
Yeah, my mom was a hospital administrator, so I thought I was going to be a doctor, and I thought I was going to go into anesthesiology, as strange as that might sound. So for those of you who don't know what that means, anesthesiologists put people to sleep when they have surgery or medical procedures. Uh, but then I don't like blood. I don't like gore. Um, and I started to hear all the stories of all the racism my mom encountered in medicine. And she, in her own way, steered me away from it because she said, you know, there's a lot of debt. There's a lot of math. I love math. So that wasn't a big problem, but it was, it just didn't sound like it was a good fit. And I was more, I was always focused on people having their rights and people being able to speak of and be themselves. And so that lent itself more to a legal career. So I was inspired by people like Thurgood Marshall and, um, you know, people of that ilk. So I said, I wanted to go into law. So I had an idea that I wanted to advocate and support underrepresented marginalized communities and work in justice or social justice or civil ju jurisprudence or something to that effect. So that's what I, um, that's what I focused on. And that's why I endeavored to be. So I ended up going to law school and realizing how miserable lawyers are in general. <laughs> so um, the good thing is I went, I did it, I saw it, I achieved it. And I was like, okay, so I know what I'm giving up and was able to parlay that into what I'm doing now um, and what I've been doing for the past 20 years. You know, it's interesting. I sat in a, um, you know, a class, like a seminar about going to law school, like mm -hmm. kind of a, should I go to law school seminar? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I'm glad I did because it was enough to make me decide not to. Mm -hmm. And then I had other ways, like I ended up getting an MSW and was able to affect change getting that degree. Um, mm -hmm. But it sounds like you were drawn, like what was the thing about law? Like were, was it the advocacy? Was it fighting for the little guy? Like what was the initial, like before you really got bogged down in like, life of a lawyer Google hours and all that stuff yeah like what was what was it the pull for you going back to your leadership quote right like you want to affect change positive change in the world yeah i think wanting to support those who didn't have a voice and didn't have access and resources and wanting to level the playing field and i think being black and queer and also having indigenous roots my great-grandparents were members of the choctaw nation so that really inspired me to say, how can we get more of what we deserve as human beings? And how can we also affect the destiny of others who don't have those rights? And I always, you know, my father will tell you this probably to his chagrin. I was always a person speaking up. I was always a person that, as he said, I knew how to speak my mind. I was thoughtful. I was curious and I knew how to advocate. And there's just something that's, that's always existed within me that could not accept and cannot accept injustice, cannot accept people being treated poorly and being denied their rights just for who they are. So a law felt like a, the obvious choice. And then I got into law and realized how much a legal practice is not about civil rights and human rights. And, you know, for me, it was about, at least when you get out of law school and you have a, your debt, which is part of the problem with the system. And then it's about paying off your debt, which means that you're helping to make rich people richer, which is not the type of law I want to do. It's not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's just not something I want to do. I also didn't want to sit behind a desk all day. I didn't want to count billable hours. I didn't want to be in a stuffy environment. And I remember one of my first days in a law firm in Milwaukee, 
wearing a pink pastel shirt. You already know where I'm going, don't you? And I'm in the elevator and there's a partner there. And he says, it takes a secure man. Like he didn't even say my name. He just said, it takes a secure man to wear a pink pastel shirt. And I said, I looked at him and I said, I think it takes a stylish man to wear a pastel pink shirt. And so you already kind of got some of that virtue signaling there of what was accepted, what was not accepted. And that was just one of many instances when I realized this industry is so staid and formulaic and traditional and patriarchal and uh, heterosex, all the things that you want to call it. I don't know how much longer I'm going to stay in this. And then it took a court case that I was involved in that really changed my trajectory and helped me to realize I didn't want to practice law. I wanted to affect change, but law was not the only way to do that. It was a mean, one may or one way or one means to do that. And so I started to realize that there were other opportunities and ways to go forward. And that's when I started to think about other ways that I could use my law degree besides, you know, practicing law and being an attorney. Yeah. What brought you to the next place and, and did your community help you? Were you sort of finding yourself in space with other people that were similarly sort of charged up about no change? No, uh, people wore the mask. A lot of people played the game. And mm. the incident that changed it for me was being in a deposition where we were the defense, representing the defense, and there was a black plaintiff. And it was a racial discrimination suit. And I could just tell by his look and his demeanor that what he was saying was true. And I remember sitting across the table from him and he didn't say anything to me, but his look gave me this, it's like he looked right through me. And, he, and at the same time, he was saying to me, what are you doing? How could you be on this other side? Don't you see what's happening? Now, what ended up happening, of course, is that his boss was black. And so the argument was, well, how can someone who's black discriminate against you because you're black? I'm like, oh, you don't understand internalized racism. And of course, the law doesn't understand those types of nuances, right? And so then I remember as I watched our lawyer definitely get him to admit that he knew that the statute of limitations had run, therefore his case had no merit or couldn't, was thrown out on the technicality. Uh, the lawyer said to me, can you just believe this guy thinks that he's being discriminated against because he's black? And I just said, well, I'm an American. And I said, in my ideas, what it means to be an American are probably very different from yours. And you might think that I'm not an American, or you might have bias towards me because of how I show up in my Americanness. And he said, hmm, I never thought about that. That's pretty deep. And I thought, well, actually it is, and it's pretty straightforward. And I remember I left the office after we got back to the office. I went down to the river, the Milwaukee River, in downtown. I sat at the Pierre Marquette um, Pavilion and cried because I felt so guilty and bad. And I said, how am I going to reconcile what I want to do with what I am doing? And I remember my mom calling my mom on my lunch break and she, her, she was saying to me, you work so hard, you can't let this go. But I thought to myself, but I can't go this way. And so I continued, you know, lo and behold, that was a summer internship and I continued for another several years. And I remember when I was in Minneapolis, because that's where I'm licensed and that's where I started practicing after grad school. And I remember announcing my resignation. And all of a sudden, all these partners and senior associates and uh, stuffy people who I thought I had nothing in common with came by my office one by one secretly. And they would say, you're making the right decision. And I would say, well, why do you say that? And one guy said bluntly, I have a wife, I have a mortgage, I have two kids, I can't leave. Another person said, while you're young and free, find something else to do that satisfies you and fulfills your soul. Other people said, 
you can make more money elsewhere. You can be happier elsewhere. But they were beholden to loan payments and oversized ambitions. And sometimes it was ego and sometimes it was their parents' expectations. And I thought, well, wow, all these people are in this. Not everybody, but a lot of these people that I thought were highly invested. They were drinking the Kool-Aid. They're telling me I should get out. I'm making the right decision. So that to me was the indication that I should look at something different. But then of course, being as determined and dogged as I am, I said, well, let me make sure that I've exhausted all options. So I tried law in different capacities and then realized that, okay, there's a different way for me to use my talents. And it doesn't mean that I'm a failure. It just means that I can evolve and I can look at things differently. And now when I see, you know, sometimes I'll be at dinner parties and I'll see some attorneys and they have a look in the demeanor and at first they they can look at you uh, or have a an impression of you if they don't think that you're a lawyer then if they find out that you were a previous attorney or that you no longer practice then there could be some judgment until they recognize that oh I'm, you're happy with what you do you're happy with your life oh right. and then there's how did you figure it out what did you do and what can you help me figure out <laughs> right so i have a lot of respect for the profession um, I have a lot of respect for the people who do it for the right reasons. I think if I had to go back and do it, I would do environmental justice. But the the way that law is set up and the, our education system is set up, it creates debt so that people are not really trying to follow their passions. They're trying to pay off loans, which is a big part of why our educational system is, mm. has issues right now. But that's a whole different conversation. It's a whole different conversation. Whole different. I appreciate everything you shared at this point, though. I mean, it sounds like... Uh, it's, it's interesting because it's not a part of your bio, but I imagine that having that education and having that sort of worldview and having seen that culture, it influences what you see today and what you notice about the world around you in a way that you might not have if you hadn't had that experience. What led you to like move forward as, as you were sort of navigating your way through different types of uh, you know, being a lawyer in this way or this other way, mm-hmm. like how did you start to to piece together the work you wanted to be doing and and find your way? I mean, you got into the world of organizational strategy and culture and all that. So, like, give me a little bit of the dotted line that moved you mm-hmm. from law school over. I think number one, realizing that law by itself doesn't change people's minds. It it forces their hand and it uh, delegate or dictates their behavior, but it doesn't change consciousness so there has to be someone else to say well not only is it illegal for you to discriminate there's also a higher level of consciousness that says this person's humanity should be respected because it's part of your own humanity that's a whole different ballgame so there's that it was me seeing so many organizations run poorly and also me being in organizations and constantly being microaggressed or having issues and then i got fired and i got fired working my last well, my second to last legal job by a former colleague who I didn't get along with. And because there was this power struggle, at least in her mind, made some accusation that I was trying to usurp her authority. And here, having won two awards and having been promoted twice, just like that, because of this person's word, um, who really didn't know me and we didn't have a lot of trust and um, good rapport. I was out of a job and I said, how many other people go through this type of stuff where you work hard, you sacrifice. And it wasn't like I was fully invested in being a lawyer, but I took pride in doing the best job I could do. And yet I was out of a job. 
And I said to myself, there are a number of people who are in this position who don't have the ability to find something else and they have to kind of stick it out and deal with it. So I said to myself, I want to be the type of person that helps to rebuild organizations so that people can come and have dignity and be seen and be authentic and never have to go through the things that I went through because even beyond that, I remember my first job as an attorney in Minneapolis, my, maybe within the first two months, a lady walked up to me who I'd seen daily and she said, what are you doing on this floor? And I said, what floor do you mean? And she said, well, we're on the 13th floor as though I didn't know that. And you should be on the ninth floor. Well, the ninth floor was a mailroom. And I remember when I, I finally figured out what she meant. And I said, well, no, actually I'm going to the printer because I need to go talk to my assistant about a memo that I need to produce for a partner. I said, in case you didn't know, I'm one of the young attorney, new attorneys, but you've seen me every single day and you really shouldn't stereotype people. And so it was just that type of stuff. And for many of us, we have so many stories that you don't even pay attention to it. But I said to myself, if I can in any way make sure that other people don't have to go through this like I have or don't have to deal with this, because we all have to work. We Most of us have to work. We have to take care of ourselves. And while we take care of ourselves and while we earn our livelihood, I don't think it's too much that people be treated with dignity and respect. I know there are some who I've heard who've said work should not be fun. I don't, but it shouldn't be drudgery either. And it shouldn't be soul sucking. So for me, I have always wanted to create environments where people could thrive and they could feel respected and use their talents and be able to live their lives on their terms Mm -hmm. and have some dignity. That to me was the first reason why I started this business and this firm. And it just went from there, particularly after those experiences I just shared with you. What year did you start out with your own shingle and your own business? 2005. 2005. Yeah. 2005. So it was an influence, like uh, some, a lot of people, 2008 uh, or 1999, like there's economic moments where people are out of a job, but uh, it sounds like you hit the wave right before all that getting out into the world. Did you know other entrepreneurs when you started down this path? No, and I didn't even know that you can make a living doing the work I do now. I didn't know that there was an industry called organizational development, organizational systems development. I didn't know there was leadership development. I didn't know there was DEIB, uh, which to me is a subset. So I remember here in San Francisco, there's so many, I love the fact that there's a lot of incubators for entrepreneurs. And so the Small Business Administration had an office in the Castro. And um, so I went over there and I was meeting with this guy's name is Ken Stram. I always think fondly of him. And he said, well, here's a business plan. I want you or a template. I want you to fill this out and come back. So I filled it out, came back. He's like, okay, I kind of get what you want to do where you're going. And he said, I think I know some people who do something similar. And he gave me someone's number. And one of my first mentors, and she's a very close friend of mine. And I literally called her up that day and I said, I understand that you and I should be friends. So let's start our friendship. And when can we meet for dinner? And she was like, who is this? And who are you? And okay. I think she was kind of struck by how bold I was. She's from the Bronx. And so she's from back East. So she could kind of get with the energy. Cause I was born in Jersey. So I, there's something in the water about people from New York. And we met over Ethiopian food in Albany, California, which is just North of Berkeley. And the rest is history. And she started getting me involved in a few things. And um, I was also, doing spoken word and poetry. And then I I remember going to a conference in Vancouver 
And that week I was performing and a lady from the audience said to me, her name was Michelle Senegal. What do you do when you're not doing this poetry thing? She said, which I love. And how do you pay your bills? And I said, well, I'm aspiring to do blank. Well, we need to talk. I want to get you involved. And so it's all about the relationships, you know, from Sima to Michelle, um, people who see a little bit of themselves in you, who want to help you, who see that you're hustling and that you are doing it for the right reasons and that there's a value connect. That's how I got started. And then, of course, when you start working with other people, you learn from their mistakes, you learn from their failures, you learn from their triumphs, you learn from their achievements. And then you also learn how to do things your way as opposed to their way. And, you know, almost 20 years later, here we are. I love this Arjun story of how you, you know, wandered into the small business administration, like session, and you've got this like template business plan. Guys like, I think I get what you're trying to do. I, I think I know something like, like it's this random connection, but you followed through with calling. And, you know, I think what's funny about 2005 versus today is today we'd feel a little guilty calling without first sending a LinkedIn message yeah. <laughs> or, you know, like sending a connection request or writing on seven posts over seven days <laughs> or like warming that up. Uh, but you were just like, yeah, we, you know, we are into the same thing. And she saw something in you just by the, even how you approached, you hit it off. And clearly having a mentor like that, opening doors, showing you some, some possible paths through. And, you know, as you go, you put your own stamp on it. And it sounds like it's evolved quite a bit from where mm -hmm. you started. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about kind of where you are these days with this work. And who do you, well, I guess I'll ask it this way. This is a Bob Berg uh, question, the guy who wrote The Go-Giver. Uh, if I were speaking to someone right now, what would they be saying that makes me realize I need to introduce them to you? That's a really good question. Um, because, you know, for, it's going to be different for every person. But I would say what I always tell people is I'm relational, which by itself uh, rules certain people out and brings a lot of other people in. If you're looking just for a transaction, then I'm probably not the right person because a transaction limits what you can do. And I'm all about connecting with people who have similar values, similar dreams and visions and want to do big things and want to do things for the right reasons. And for that, for me, it means change the planet to work for everyone. So I like people who um, are relational and can see beyond the immediate business gratification. Because I've been in those circles, I'm sure you've been too, where people are like, so what are you working on? Who are your clients? And what are your projects? I'm like, this is so boring. I'm more attracted to people who talk about their passions or dreams and what they want to affect in the world. And it helps that you have a sense of humor, that you got a little bit of personality, that you also are okay with just taking a little bit of time just to do something as simple as to check in or to break bread or just to ask about other things like where did you grow up or all those sorts of things. So I think when you do that, then your connection becomes multidimensional. It's not just limited to a business purpose because if it's just a business purpose, once that business is over, uh, more likely than not, that's the end of the connection the relationship for me. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about the business piece of it. Like, what are they complaining about? What, what kind of what kind of uh, problems are they having, or services do they need, or they think they need? Yeah, I, I try to frame I try to frame it in positive terms. What I try to say to people is, how do you want to be better? How do you want to be more human centered, people centered? How do you want to reach your full potential? How do you want to make sure that everybody within the organization is helping to achieve the mission? 
Um, how do you want to make sure that your leaders are reaching their full potential? And how are you anticipating and reaching out to the markets that you haven't already reached out to? And how are you making yourself relevant for the people who aren't even born yet? The people who don't know that they need you and the people who you've never come in contact with. That's what it really comes down to. Um, and then also making sure that when people come into your organization, that the same experience that you want your customers to have, you want your employees to have. And I can tell you how strange it is to work with a number of organizations where, and these are a lot of, some of these are left-leaning, where they have all these lofty missions and goals, and they say the, the right things, these niceties, but inside people are suffering and people don't feel seen and respected. So for me, it's all about helping ecosystems. It's not even about organizations, but ecosystems to thrive better, to operate better, because they all turn on relationships. Organizations consist of people. So how can people work together more efficiently, particularly in the, the global marketplace where now you have different, you've always had different ways of working, different ways of socializing, different norms around professional, uh, being professional, and now having to make those more explicit because we live in an interdependent society. So the way that I might work in Singapore is different than how I might work in Hungary, which is different than how I might work in Dubai, which is different than how I might work in Kenya or Canada. That to me is really fascinating. And I think for us to survive as a species, it is also the spiritual work because if we don't learn how to connect and to understand and to respect and to grow in the, at that contact point when we work with someone from a different culture, then how are we going to solve the most vexing issues related to climate change or extremism or poverty or education or, you know, the like? All these, so that work in and of itself is really about yeah. the larger work of human beings being kinder to each other, but learning how to collaborate so that we can all survive and, and not just survive, but thrive. Give me a sense of how, what the the book um, origin story is, because you, know, you have this, this book that kind of brings together these concepts that you don't usually see on the same page. Um, so, you know, you've got yeah, queer, you have souls and you have workplace and you're, you're sort of bringing this all together. So it, it clearly sounds like an extension of who you are. Like it's all of your histories intertwined. Um, but what, what led you to decide that this is a book you want to bring forth? Was this already a topic you've been writing about or speaking about? Like, how does it come to be and who are you trying to reach? Yeah. So who am I trying to reach? Leaders in every part of the world, because leadership is not something that is resolved or resigned just to uh, certain industries is for everybody. And what I say in the book is, but before you can lead an industry and a company or organization, you got to lead yourself. And also being very clear that this book is not just for organizations or corporations, it's for communities, civic groups, it's for our world, especially at a time, at least here in the U.S., where leadership uh, if you look at Congress, if you look at the last um, couple of election cycles, if you just look at social media, leadership seems to be in kind of a crisis. So how did the book come about? Uh, I was doing research in my uh, doctoral program around what does it mean to be queer? Because as a black person, it was always like very clear, like this is what it means to be black. And I was like, yes, I love it. The queer question, I don't think has always, has never, never really been clear. And a lot of what I read was very stereotypical. A lot of what I read was kind of two-dimensional, even by other queer would-be thought leaders. So I said, well, let's actually not treat this question as though it's really not been answered, because it really hasn't, and let's not go by the assumptions and presumptions that have already been made. In the course of doing that, as I then did the research, and I won't get too nerdy with you, but you know, did my qualitative research and then my quantitative research 
and talked to people all across North America, um, many of whom were people of color, immigrants, and people who were not native to the US. I looked at these values of what we stood for and I said, well, wait a minute. As I'm also hearing and reading about what people are looking for in their leaders, there is a lot of overlap. In fact, there is congruency. There is perfect synchronicity between what queer people embody naturally and what people are looking for their leaders now in 20, you know, 21st century. And I said, well, how about that? So the skills that people, employers are looking for, people don't necessarily need to go to Harvard to acquire these. A lot of these skill sets we naturally embody because of who we are. And the fascinating thing to me is rather than saying, you know, the typical uh, interview question, how did you learn these skills? Did you learn on a project or tell me a time when you learned this? Well, how about I learned it when I was trying to fight for my life? How about I learned it when I was trying to survive and overcome discrimination? How about I learned it when I was trying to make sure that I could be myself, with my family, or that I can make sure I had something to eat. And not only have queer people been able to do it in these time-tested, high-stakes situations, we've also been able to do so and not just survive, but to thrive. So if I'm someone who's outside the community, I would think, well, I want to learn and get some of that because whatever that is, it has um, been proven at the margins, it's worked, and people in our culture and our community globally has been able to survive because of it. So that's where the book came from, is looking at leadership's development from a different standpoint of, you don't have to read these stuffy, boring manuals and books and go to these lectures and talk to people with, you know, who are kind of tight about leadership. A lot of what minoritized populations naturally learn in their journey to move from the margins into some um, part of mainstream society is what our world needs. And in fact, not only does the world need this wisdom, it also helps to reframe how we look at queer people. It also helps to free queer people from the harsh realities that many of us are dealing with. So it was multi-layer. And so for me, it just became, um, this new idea of focusing on queer cultural genius. That's how I I call it or how I refer to it. This idea that queer people possess this intellectual and social acumen that helps us to be leaders wherever we go. And again, reminding people that leadership begins with you leading yourself, because if you don't lead yourself, how are you going to lead somebody else? And so that's how the book came into fruition. And then in terms of the soul piece, um, helping people to see the souls of who we are and not just the surface level, which is what I think a lot of the books on queer culture have been very surface level, superficial and stereotypical. This is wonderful. Thank you for that. Sure. And uh, I'm sure that it's going to really resonate with some of the people listening. Um, as we're wrapping up, I'm curious about how your network has supported you around this. Like, how are you able to activate your network around your book launch or about like your, your business, like any habits, philosophies? practices for staying connected with these folks or kind of activating your network? So I'll tell you a story that I don't share very often. So two years ago, I wrote to my network and said, okay, I always do this manifestation practice, not to, you know, get into too deep into spirituality, but that's part of me. And I, I wrote to a hundred people in my network who I'm close to. And I said, here are the things I wanted to manifest. And all I need you to do is just use whatever positive energy you have doesn't matter what your spiritual tradition is, whether you're agnostic, atheist or not, but just use your positive energy and love to support what I am bringing forth. And one of those things was my book. And so 
I could feel people when I wrote my book, checking in, how's the book going and whatnot? How can I share this? And so then when the book came out, I had people who were sharing the news of the book. I've had people who have gotten me speaking opportunities. Um, that again, goes back to investing in relationships, not the transaction. So my network continues to grow. Um, and I think it's important to not prejudge who can be part of your quote unquote network, but also not to treat people like they're part of your network. I, I look at it as more of these are part of my community and um, people that support me. I support them. I like to highlight and uplift other people who are doing great things and to say this, you know, I'm not the only person trying to do something here. And how can we support each other? So I wouldn't have be where I am. And uh, the book wouldn't have been written were it not for the community, were it not for the people who gave me their time and energy and their perspective. And I'm forever grateful for it. That's really wonderful. Um, we're about to get to my favorite wrap up question before we sure. do a quick word from our sponsor. All right, our favorite wrap up question here is, I want to stay connected. And I hope we do And a year from now, I'm going to remember that, hey, I interviewed you a year ago. And I'm going to ask you what you're celebrating a year later. Like, you know, what's going on these days? What are we toasting? What are you looking forward to the most in the year ahead? Oh, that's a sweet question. First of all, we're, uh, we don't have to hope that we're going to stay connected. We just stay connected. So we got the power to make that happen. Um, I'm looking forward to being married. Um, I'm looking forward to building a family. So uh, I see me and my partner married. Um, and building a, a life together that is joyous and adventurous and um, safe and loving. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to balancing, again, my nerdy energy with my my husband energy and maybe some daddy energy too, besides, you know, a dog, but maybe actually a little human being too. So that's what I'm looking forward to next year. And um, we're working on book number two. So that book is already in the works, actually books two and three, but I'm going to chill out between now and then and just enjoy the ride and not get into this relentless cycle of work that we find ourselves in in America and just say, I just want to enjoy life and take some time just to be. So that's what I'm looking for next year. That sounds wonderful. And I can't wait to celebrate all that with you. And of course, support you. I don't even know this, but uh, I've self-published three books that all mm. have over 200 reviews on Amazon. Nice. I do these big launches. So let me know when you get your launches going and happy to hop on your launch team and help you make that happen. I appreciate that. A little virtual launch party action, maybe. So uh, how can people find you and, and follow your work? What are some of the links or resources you want to share? Sure. So I'm a recovering social media um, a follower, I guess, or um, persona. So I'm, I first you can find me at joeldavisbrown.com. That's my public speaking Mm -hmm. website. You can also find my business website at numos.com. It's P-N-E-U-M-O-S.com. LinkedIn. And then I'm still holding on to Instagram. So Joel A. Brown, uh, not active anyplace else on social media, but you'll find that I, I love pictures and I'm active there. And just reach out. I would say to people, uh, I like to be accessible because I know what it's like when others were access accessible to me. And I want to be accessible to the next generation, the next person who has a brilliant idea, a business idea, or just needs some hope and inspiration to say, you can do it. Let me nudge you. Let me help you. Let me support you. And let's do it. So that's how you can reach out. And I hope people will reach out and say hello. 
I hope so too. And if you do reach out, please make sure you let Joel know that you heard him here. I'm going to put all the links and the resources in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Joel, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joel. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 363. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance. Look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.